0: Hello and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I am Jon Tierd, your host, and with me is my guest, Caroline Fritz, who is the author of The Story of Arbucks, a really great novel that I read last spring, and I'm really pleased to have her here. Caroline grew up in the world of antiques and historically important oddities in Colorado. The ghosts of a decaying Victorian mining history lingered with her as she grew and inspired her first novel, The Victorian fascination with fairy tales and mythology continues to lead her to write creative poetry and stories of her own. Her second novel, The Story of Arbucks, is an adventurous retelling of tales from the author's grandfather. Welcome to The Gifts of the Weird, Caroline.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: It is great to have you. Uh, as I mentioned a few seconds ago, I read The Story of Arbucks and I really, really had a good time with that. It was so fun. Oh, I'm so, so pleased. Yeah, it's... Um, it, it was it was my bedtime story for a number of nights. I don't know if that's how you intended it to be, but that's what it became. <laughs> it was well, I love l-
1: that. I love that. I did grow up in my own world of my own little Scheherazade. Like every night was its own little story. And uh, I love that kind of approach. Um, and just, you know, we shouldn't get the whole story in one scoop anyway. So I'm glad you let it kind of linger.
0: It did. And not to get ahead of things, but that was one of the cool things about the way that you had formatted the story is that it was each chapter was like a couple of tiny little stories in and of themselves so I could just read one chapter and know that okay this little portion is done and then I'll the next day I'll kind of remember that and continue on with the story but it was really neat.
1: I'm so happy to hear that it's uh I mean I have kind of a chronically short attention span anyway so uh that style suits me right down to the ground as well.
0: Great. So uh, uh, let's learn a little bit about you, if you don't mind. You grew up in Colorado, and I I, I grew up in Utah, so that's not far from you. And I'm sure a lot of our mountain and uh, smaller town cultures are very similar. Do you consider yourself a, a heathen or a pagan or just a spiritual practitioner?
1: Well, I guess uh, conversationally, I'll simply say that I'm a heathen uh, or a polytheist just to immediately kind of establish that I'm not a Christian. Um, and then I'll follow that up by kind of reading my audience and leading them through what that means. It's not that I'm hateful towards Christians or other monotheists. It's just that it was a bad fit for me. And it takes careful like consideration to explain that to people who for whom polytheism has never been an option. Um Sometimes people think that means Wicca, or they'll they'll ask, "Oh, polytheism like Shinto or Hinduism," and that will start its own conversation. And but usually um, it's when we, the situation we're all familiar with, where we're up against somebody who thinks that heathen means like Satan or racist or bigoted. So I have to take that a little bit slower. But um, uh, long story short, I basically. I'm a polytheist, and that means that I walk with multiple gods instead of just one. And um, to pursue the matter further, I will say that I am Asatru, uh, Norse heathen, um, and that most honestly, I just walk with the gods of my ancestors. But uh, I do want to say that as part of the Asatru path, let me be completely clear that uh, the misguided idea of white power has nothing to do with Asatru but for what frightened and uneducated children might try to put into it. Um, Diversity was good enough for Odin, and it's good enough for me. Racism and bigotry is what Hitler brought to the table, and that kind of depravity has no place in this faith path.
0: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That is what uh, I'm about, and that's what this podcast is about, is uh, no to... uh, bigotry no to, that white power, uh, supremacy, and it's about whoever the gods are calling to say, hey, I I like you, I want you to be in my my hall, then that's who he's going to call. And it doesn't matter about any other type of thing about them.
1: And that is so important to me when I'm writing is that I want to make sure that my characters are open and inclusive and that the idea of exclusiveness and, you know, Odin is only for me or Tor is only for me. um, That does not apply because in the old days you couldn't be exclusive or you would die. If you put built up too high of a wall around your farm, you wouldn't get any help from your neighbors and, um, again, if diversity is good enough for Odin, diversity is good enough for my ancestors, then by thunder, it's good enough for me and it ought to be for anybody else who studies and does their homework long enough.
0: Exactly. That's, that's great. And, uh, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that. And, <laughs> yeah. And it makes, uh, it makes, um, reading and meeting authors and reading their, their tales and things so much more enjoyable, knowing that we don't have to worry about some subtext or anything like that. Right,
1: right. The only agenda I have is, you know, making other people weird like me. So that's all you got to worry <laughs> about.
0: <laughs> awesome. So um, speaking of then the, the gods and goddesses that you walk with, do you have... Has one kind of taken you under their wing and said, um, I really Uh. liked to work with you a lot (laughs) and not exclusively, but a lot more than say some of the others.
1: Well, I I actually, I get that a lot. Um, I think polytheists as a rule are kind of asked, who's your favorite, you know, like who's your favorite son? Who's your favorite, you know, who's your favorite grandparent? Um, And that's a really, it's an easy and a hard question to answer because it's, it is, it is a big population of faces out there. And, you mm-hmm. know, you can pick a favorite, but why pick a favorite when you've got a whole, you know, Senate full of voices to choose from? Um, I mean, to to actually address the question, uh, you know, there are two main factions of the Norse gods. Um, there's the Azir and the Vanir. And I'm typically more drawn to the earth gods, the Vanir, um, because they just make more sense to my mushy little mind. Uh, I grew up in the mountains. I grew up in the trees and the birds and watching stones and learning how to read the clouds. Um, The politics and courtesanship of the Azir is a little bit more foreign to me. Um, however, as is the case with many, uh, Tor is the one that brought me to the party. Um, I met him when I was a confused, lost teenager with little to no direction in life. And I learned that, uh, Jesus gives instructions. Um, Odin asks questions and Tor, you know, he's along for the ride. Um, he's not exactly the thinker in the room, but, uh, he's willing to see (laughs) what happens. Uh, he's the salt of the earth. He's the courage and strength from a very deep and special place. Um, like me, he is famously impatient. Um, he'll help as much as he can because he can. And honestly, even though there's a place in my home for all of the gods, um, he's he does have a special place because he, he brought me to the dance and he taught me that it was okay to be messed up. Um, it's okay to have a hangover and to be throwing up in the toilet. He'll sit there and pat you on the back and say, Oh, honey this one time, you know, and give you his story. So, um, that's really how I was brought into, uh, brought onto the path with a lot of kindness, a lot of patience, um, a lot of storytelling and a lot of really fun weather.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, quite a story. Uh, so basically, <laughs> basically, you're saying Thor holds your hair back on that morning after. Pretty <laughs> much,
1: yeah, I can think of no finer hand to do the job.
0: That's true. Yeah. So well, that's really great. Uh, a way to explain it, because, uh, you know, it wasn't about asking who's your favorite. It's like who's lingers most in your hall and says, Hey, uh, let's let's do things together. And sure. sometimes, sometimes the ones that I've thought, "Hey, I want to get to know, or I want to. I want to pick this one as my favorite. They're like, yeah, yeah, I like you, but yeah, um, it's like, I okay, think we
1: can we can shake hands. But I got stuff to do over here. Or yeah, you know.
0: and I think they really want you over there. Which kind of um, mm-hmm. what happened to me when, when I started out? I was starting off with um, an Irish, the Irish gods and goddesses, a lot, and then um, all of a sudden I kind of. Um, Breech kind of took me by the hand and said, we're going for a walk in some little spiritual journey. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And next thing I <laughs> know, I'm standing before Freya and she's like, she's pushes like, me front back and says, here, he's yours. We like, took care of him for you. Get on and the boat, kid. I was boat, like,
1: kid. <laughs> <I'm> like,
0: okay. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's it's definitely a conversation. It's There's no... Um, the, I feel like people who are too eager to marry themselves to one god in particular lose out on a lot of conversations. There's so much to be learned from each personality, and um, that's part of the strength of the Norse pantheon. And even you know, in the rest of the islands, um, those pantheons are built for a reason. It's because one person cannot possibly contain Frigg and Freya and Sif and Tor. You need all these people to be independent to help teach you how to address each situation. And uh, that is that is a real strength for me um as as I've taken that through the rest of my life
0: that's a that's an excellent way to um to phrase that too. That's great. love that and, <laughs> and, and and you know it also kind of le- lends to um not closing our doors to the Irish or the Greek or the Roman uh-huh. pantheons as well because they have a lot of valuable things to offer. It's like our circle of people that we interact with it's
1: absolutely. It's,
0: we can learn and grow from so much. So yeah,
1: absolutely. There's, so. there's room, uh, you know, there's room at my, at my table for Odin and Thor. There's room at my table for Dionysus, you know, if he brings a little bit of cash for the beer, um, <laughs> they, you know, and uh Steaha and all these other characters. Um, they, it's important. You can learn from all these other people and voices and stories that humanity has created and shared and told over and over again, because it's what we have needed to learn over and over again. And it's the, part of the human experience that these stories exist. And it's I, far be it for me to stand in the way of these ancestral voices, trying to tell me to get my shit together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, to <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, talking about all of your stories and all of this, um, when I was, when I read a little bit about you, um, you've double majored in German and French.
1: Mm. Is that correct? I, that is correct.
0: Okay. And so you've studied languages and you um, you love languages and that's awesome. Uh, and uh, I see that you visit a lot of countries, but you also lived in Iceland and Holland. Is that what it's said? Uh, or not, you just visited them? Not
1: so much lived in, but I've done a tremendous amount of travel, um, a couple of months, uh, a couple of weeks at a time. Um, in uh, high school, um, when I was really struggling, my parents discovered a program in Minnesota, the language camps in Bemidji, and that was my opportunity to learn Norwegian, uh, which was the basically the first language of my father, um, and that was also an opportunity to get out of my teeny-weeny little small town and learn about this weird little meat suit that I had and the person occupying it, and I got the first chance to really kind of become who I was who I felt I was meant to be. Um, And so then, yeah, that just kind of bloomed into, well, now I'm too old for summer camp, so let's go to summer camp in Oslo. Let's go to the uh, international school in Oslo. And then I went to summer camp in Norway for a couple of years. And then um, it just sort of bloomed from there to international travel and I visited China. And as kind of a test drive, um, my husband and I went to Iceland together uh, I took him to Iceland as a graduation present, but also mostly to see if the relationship was going to work. And, uh, and it did. <laughs>
0: that, they always say the best way to test uh, the relationship is to travel for two weeks.
1: Boy, howdy. That's truth. <laughs> and, uh, it worked like a charm. And now we travel together. We actually just got back from um, seeing my uh, sister get married in Germany. Uh, and then uh, as a vacation from our vacation, we went back to Iceland, which has become kind of our Mecca. And, um, we just, we love it. I love traveling. I love communicating. Um, the languages learning languages has really given me, given my brain a means of, I don't want to say control, but it's given me more access to communication that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And being unable to communicate, being misunderstood is one of my deepest, deepest fears and frustrations. Uh, so I think, My parents' gift of language to me, especially when I was terrible at math, um, was the key that opened the rest of the world to me.
0: I I totally understand. I went to, I had French in high school and we went to France when I was in high school and that was an amazing eye-opening experience and opened up my mind and heart to travel and I've traveled ever since. So it's, it's really amazing.
1: And it's, it's funny because it can be so exhausting and so frustrating and, um, But then again, when you get home, you're like, oh, my God, I want to do it again.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What? It's over?
1: (laughs) Right. Right. You're like, I'm ready for more. Let's do this.
0: Uh, On the the 17th day or so, you're like, I got to get home. I can't wait to get home. And then Uh three days after, you're like, I want to go back. When can I plan my next trip?
1: I don't want to unpack. I just want to get some clean underwear and let's hit the road again. Let's do this. Uh,
0: Yes. Yes. (laughs) So. Caroline, what drew you to writing? Uh, You said you weren't good at math, but um, what is it about writing that's exciting to you? And how long did you start in high school or when did you really start picking that up?
1: Yeah. So I've never, ever been good at math. If math math is water, I'm like a duck, right? You can hold the duck underwater, but it's never going to absorb. That duck will just fly away and everything will (laughs) shake off. He'll be dry as a bone, no problem. So it never really sunk in with me. And honestly, I've never been a good reader either, if you can believe it. I was not that quick of a student with normal school things um, because the rest of the world was just far too interesting. Why learn about verbs when there's whole lungfuls of air going in and out of my face all the time, you know? (laughs) know? Why remember multiplication tables when watching water flow down the window is so much more interesting? That distractible mindset led to an academic career that was deeply rooted in frustration and failure and an endless line of well-meaning teachers telling my parents that I wasn't living up to my potential. And um, one teacher in high school, it was my senior year, and I was not doing well. It was one particular English class that I took with about four other students, and that teacher really raised the bar for me. She uh, she looked at this little failing package that was me, and she put a pen in my hand, and she said, write a poem. And I said, I wouldn't, because I couldn't, because I didn't know how, and it would be terrible. Um, and she said, well, do it anyway. Um, so I did, because I didn't know how to reject authority at that point either. <laughs> um, and it was really good. And everybody in the class liked it, uh, to, much to my surprise. And for the first time, I felt that small little shine of academic validation that I had never had before. And that's kind of, you know, as a really moody, self-loathing, lost teenager, I wrote a lot of poetry that helped me communicate. And I wrote exactly the kind of poetry that all really moody, self-loathing, lost teenagers write. Um, <laughs> but you know i couldn't escape the depression the moodiness the flakiness those deep quintessential artist type behaviors that run deep in my family but at least i could shout back at the monsters in my head and start you know establishing a tiny piece of rock that i could stand on in the storm and write poetry and invent stories and build my arsenal of language to kind of claw my way back into the world when i was well into my 30s i was living with my boyfriend at the time in a house we had just bought together and one afternoon, I was just sobbing endlessly for hours on the bed. Um, no reason, you know, just sobbing, the ugly cry, right? But for hours, and he comes home, and he's like, well, you know, honey, you're depressed. Um, Go talk to a doctor already. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, I'll totally try that. It just hadn't occurred to me to go see a doctor. And of course, I went To see the doctor, and the doctor gave me some wonderful meds um, that have absolutely changed my life. It was the smartest decision I ever made. And as part of this depression and the moodiness, um, I've always had exhausting nightmares. And I, and I've been able to, I've had this gift from my husband that I can tell him all of these things. And I told him about my nightmares, and I was always complaining about I never finish anything, I'm not good at anything, you know, I'm stupid, I'm doomed to a life of mediocrity, all that stuff I'd learned about myself as a kid. And he was just mm-hmm. over it, and he, <laughs> he said, "Okay, well, turn your night—I dare you to turn your nightmare into a novel." He dared me to start writing it and finish it all in one go using that that NanoRimo website. You know, it helps you write a novel in like one month in November and Mm -hmm. he dared me. So like, I, I couldn't let him win. So um, I did it. And it was, I basically locked myself away for all of that November and just wrote out a surprisingly cohesive little ghost story that was pretty different from all my other original stuff, but it was a final product and it worked out. And then of course he dared me to publish it, (laughs) which I did. And that was, again, that was another piece of little validation. And I used a self-publishing vanity warehouse and they got it out. They helped me do the promotional material I sold a bunch of spines. I'm probably still in the red, but that doesn't even matter. And it was just really empowering. It was it's great medicine to be able to look your name up on, you know, Amazon and then bam, there's there you are. You've got like an author bio and everything. So, yeah, it was a really organic kind of process and I always have that inner voice telling me that oh, it can't be that hard because I did it, you know. Like, oh, you can't finish this. No, you're not good enough. Don't worry about it. But I have all these other voices outside of me that are now saying, "Hey, why don't you do it again because we really liked it last time and uh that's that's been you know i'm 42 now and that's been really a magical kind of journey for me to to get that all into place and it's hard fought but uh gosh i wouldn't trade it for the world (laughs) wow (laughs) that that was kind of a lot right sorry
0: no, I, I I love it because it's quite it's it's such a journey and it's very inspirational because you know there's probably a lot of people that are stuck at that looking at a page and a pen laying there or looking mm-hmm. at a keyboard and saying yes I want to write and I want to get this out but I'm afraid to oh or,
1: yeah that blank what if
0: page I, yeah what yeah, if I don't nice. finish it <laughs> I hate you that know? blank
1: page so hard. <laughs> And um, really what it comes down to is uh, there's the people always ask me, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you get past that? And I have to promise myself not to edit as I'm writing. I can only do one thing at a time. I can either write or I can edit. I can't do both at the same time. And that's really
0: easy to do, isn't it, Caroline?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um it, that it, was
0: sarcasm a
1: couple of <laughs> bottles of wine the first time but uh yeah it's no it's um it takes a lot of discipline to get past that voice in your head that says oh wait redo that first bit um really it really helps to do the rimo thing when you do have a tight deadline and say no just just barium enema the entire thing out into a computer file save it and walk away from it and then you know a couple of months later you can go in and sort of triage and uh, look at all the bits and pieces and stitch the organs together and see if you've got, like, a living organism that will actually walk away or not. And um, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Sometimes a lot of organs end up in the bucket, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a process. It's a process.
0: But they may become part of a donor program. You might use them later for something else, yes?
1: Well, yes, that's usually called the collection of short stories. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly oh wow well that's really inspiring I, I think Aww. that's really cool so uh, t- talking about that process and how do the characters come alive for you and we're kind of leading up to the story of our books, right. uh, because I found some really interesting characters in like the three or four main well the four I, I've identified four main ones there but they really came alive how does that process happen along how do you how do they come along for you during a writing project
1: they are very alive for me as well. They're just this side of full-on hallucinations, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Many artists and writers, Stephen King, uh, Neil Gaiman, they, they often talk about the human mind as a warehouse or a library or something like that. Um, and my own mind is very much like a small town Main Street, and I happen to do my writing and story collecting inside one of the shops there, and I'm often found mm. gazing out the main window and just, you know, watching the creatures of my mind walk around and do their business. Sometimes I get to chat with one or two of them, and sometimes I have to leave town for a while until the bad guys go away. But when I'm really focused on a project, it's literally like I'm invited into their lives to kind of watch and participate and sort of be a fly on the wall as things happen. I hear the conversations. I see the conversations happening in my head, and I am lucky enough to be able to uh, get that captured on well, not really paper anymore, but in digital little letters on my computer screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I can't get a character into view for a couple of months. Sometimes they're shy. Sometimes the character won't shut up and leave me alone, even when that part of the story is well concluded. It's a very passive acquisition for me. I I get to watch what happens and then record the events. And if I'm really paying attention, then I can lead the plot where it needs to go to make a better story. But sometimes I have to rely on outside sources like my folks or my husband to kind of read that bit and be like, well, this should happen or that should happen or yeah, we don't care about this person so much.
0: <laughs> I, I've heard that a lot from other authors. So I need to find that world in my world and step into it.
1: Well, and it's going to be different for every person. Some people are really visual. Some people are really audio. Some people are super tactile. Some people, you know... You just like staring at trees, and then that's when the thoughts and the stories come to you. You got to find your own space.
0: So, speaking about space, yes. let's talk about the space of Arbucks. Uh, you do have, <laughs> you do have the other book, The Victorian, and I haven't read it. It seems very, very interesting. As I've looked at the write-up about it, I think I will be getting it. But um, I don't think it's directly related to the same topic as Arbucks.
1: It is not. The Victorian is that first novel that I wrote and then self-published. It's the one that I was dared to do. Mm-hmm. I'd written, of course, oodles of smaller stuff and teenager stuff, but The Victorian was really the event that helped me set up shop, as it were, and pay attention to the things in my head. And then once that was done and dusted, um, Arbix was just another story that came to me, and it needed telling almost as badly. And. At this point, I think more so because after my first book, I knew I could tell the story and I could find a platform to share it that would give it kind of the attention and the power that it needed. I, I kept a kept a tight hold on this story for a very long time because it is very special to me personally. I wasn't ready to let Arbix into the great wide world right away. Uh, it took me a while to get used to the idea, and now you know these things just kind of hit me every now and then, and I've got way too many projects to uh, <laughs> that are begging for my attention
0: so your father is of norwegian heritage so you are of course too is he directly from norway or is his
1: his parents are okay Um, so he was he was born uh, on the east coast and um his parents uh were born in norway and i i the norwegian or the quote-unquote norwegian because it's only been norway for like 200 years It comes from both sides of my family, actually. I've got Scottish blood in there, Italian, you know, all kinds of good stuff. But the majority of the recipe comes from uh, Norway. And yeah.
0: Did he carry on a lot of those traditions to you as a little girl and to your family? Did you Um, or did you just kind of feel that they were there, even if not like directly traditional dress or things like that?
1: He exposed us to a lot of the traditional dress, of course, to the language and we always had lots of little traditions when I was a kid that wasn't exactly flagged as, oh, this is a pagan thing we do. It was just mm-hmm. stuff we did, like superstitions. Mm-hmm. Like every Christmas, we would feed the house spirit, the Nissa, a bowl of porridge as thanks for looking after the house and our pets all year. Yes. Um, on January 1st, we put out pennies uh, outside the front door on the last day of the year. And then the first one to come into the house has to bring the pennies inside as a ritual to make sure money is going to be coming into the house all year. You know, we eat the black-eyed peas, we eat the cabbage. We had all these little things that we did, but it never really, they never really put a pin in it and, and said that, you know, this is why, or this is because we are X, Y, Z. It just didn't occur to me until I actually reached college that anybody else would have considered that anything but perfectly mundane. He didn't necessarily read us the fairy tales, but his presence in the home allowed for fairy tales to take place. I'm not really sure if that makes sense, but he, he lives his life in such a way that magic it happens. It's not, it's just part of, you know, you make coffee and the Nissa feeds the cat every now and then. It's, uh-huh. um, if you've lost your shoes, you ask the Nissa politely to put them back where they belong and then bada bing, bada boom, you find them. Um,
0: <laughs> where you've looked it, five it, times.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Both of my parents were, they, it was very subtle. It was very subtle just accepting that the world is a mysterious place. It is often an unfair and brutal place. And here are some very subtle, simple little coping mechanisms that we can use to kind of make it a little bit more digestible.
0: Yeah. A lot of people's traditions, they're just part of life. It's not Singled out as anything particularly different, it's just part of the world.
1: Exactly. And I, I mean, when people hear that I'm not a monotheist, that I'm not Christian, they're like, well, you know, church is really important. And absolutely, church is important. Ceremonies are important. Rites of passage are so important to the human experience. But it's like the, I don't know who it was, Carl Jung, maybe, who said that uh, religion is for the community and faith is, for, is between you and the divine you do your religious services not so much for God or for the gods, you do it to be part of the community. And That's to kind so of true. and to kind of reaffirm your place as part of the tribe. And but your faith is deep and unwavering and it it it's a fidelity that that goes someplace far beyond wearing jewelry or getting a tattoo or doing a special dance on Thursday.
0: Yeah. So how did Har- uh, Arbucks come to you? Or what was the process of that? Was was Did granddad come and say, hey, I have stories to tell? Or <laughs> was it the grandson that said, hey, I, I really want to tell you the stories that my granddad told me? Or did Arbucks kind of appear and say, tell my story?
1: Arbix is really special to me, but um and seriously, just like he did in the book, uh, he came crashing into me through the woods and he just made it impossible to ignore the fact that he needed some place to go. Um, red Pants and, and all. Red pants and all, red pants and all. That's how I knew. That's uh it's yeah.
0: That is really, really interesting. Uh, um, do you think it was just some Nissa or something that's just like, hey, you know, let's let's tell the story.
1: I'm not sure. Um I was actually I remember the exact moment it came to me. I was sitting in a service center waiting for my tires to be replaced and I'm looking out the window and I just think, "Oh my god, that's Arbix. This is there's this thing in my head and he's a giant and oh my god, he's in Wisconsin and he's lost and and who is this little boy next to him? And I I almost got, if I had not been on my medication, I certainly would have gotten choked up and had a little bit of a problem publicly. But, yeah, I just uh, grabbed a pen and my little notebook, and I just started writing away furiously for the duration of my car servicing.
0: <laughs> wow. So part of that, did you have to go to the Eddas uh, for the Audi quotes, or did the, were all those already part of it? Or what kind oh, of research oh, did you have to do for this?
1: Those are Definitely deeply ingrained uh, in who I am since I was very, very young. I remember sitting in the backseat of the car as the whole family drives across the country. We went to Nova Scotia. We went to Seattle just on summer vacations to all kinds of remote and fascinating places. And one of the things that we listened to, we had a really fancy car that had a tape deck in it. And we got to listen to audio tapes, um, and this, it came in a light blue case, and it, ca- it was called Tales from Viking Times, and it's read by a gentleman by the name of Magnus Magnusson, and he talks about the Icelandic folk tales and sagas um, in this just delicious honeyed voice that's so comforting, and I've, I think I've listened to that, that tape set about a few hundred times. And every time I hear that beautiful voice, I'm eight years old again, listening to the stories, believing every single word. And that's really what kind of got me into wait, I need to know more about these sagas. I need to read the Eddas and the poetry and the runes and the folk and the fairy tales. And after that, I just started consuming it. Um, because, you know, life doesn't come with an ex- instruction manual, but having the Eddas around geez, it sure goes a long way to fill in the blanks. <laughs>
0: And I love the the ones that are, are showed up in the book here and there. They were just so...
1: Those are the ones that I refer to most often. You can hear me quoting the Eddas pretty regularly. I yeah, actually that's... said yesterday, to I was giving some tech help to somebody and he's like, oh, thank you so much. I said, yeah, let's not praise the bridge before it's crossed. And he had no idea what I was talking about, but it made sense. And like, yeah, that's a great idea. So, um, yeah, I, it's it's definitely part of my everyday batter of who I am to know and have the Eddas just constantly present in my mind.
0: Yeah, I love the perspectives uh, of the story. And basically, there's three. And, and I guess there's this, the perspective of Arbucks, but we don't really get into Arbux's head. But we, we do get to hear the side of the story from young granddad, elder granddad, and grown grandson talking about what granddad told him. So... How did these perspectives come into the play? Because it's almost like having three, three people telling you the stories all at the same time, which is one of the things that really made it intriguing for me and so fun to go along because even within the chapter, you, you go from one to the other to the other. Yeah. And it's so smooth and seamless.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because uh, I remember getting a lot of critiques when I was in high school that my writing style was too choppy. <laughs> I would switch voices too, too regularly, and my teachers hated that. But for this one, I really liked the challenge of having three specific voices to capture in one book. I liked that they were all male, and I liked that I wanted to see what it felt like to be these incredible people. Each one of them displays something that my own personal self can't possibly be, so it's really fun to kind of jump into their skin and look at this piece of my mind that's always been there and finally gets a little place to live. So like, there's three perspectives, right? So there's young grandfather... Um, and uh, granddad is named Henry, and I really like how young Henry doesn't really figure out about the whole world going to pieces. He doesn't realize that it's you know World War Two about to. Explode all over the place. He's just—he has a singular purpose, and so many uh, teenagers across the history of humankind would be so well served with something like that. Teenagers need to be consumed by some all-important quest. It's what they're best at. It's what teenagers do. Mm -hmm. Um, They crave the chance to dedicate themselves fully to the one right cause. And young Henry had that chance, and he took it just as naturally as anybody breathes air. And then older Henry, we've got Granddad, the the older. Sort of father figure in the family. he's he's the manifestation of Odin that I think we would all like to have somewhere in our lives. He's the wanderer who comes to our tables and enchants us with stories. he's He's the old guy who's been everywhere and knows everything. And even at his weakest, he's still ten thousand times more important to those who love him than he will ever know. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, you know, he's he's the kind of person I think many of us deeply wish to engage with and hopefully on some level become. And then the narrator, this dad, you know, mid-40s, typing away, whatever. He's confronting his own life story amidst the buzz and demands of real life. He's got kids. He's trying to keep this magical person in his life alive, understanding that as long as people remember, you know, he'll never be deceased, which goes back to the oddies. cattle die, kinsmen die, you yourself must likewise die, but the word fame will never die of him who earns it well. And um, that's basically the underlying... Lying current of this book is that this man, this narrator, he doesn't want immortality for himself, but he's hoping to maybe bring just a little bit more to this amazing grandfather figure that he had instead. He's a man who's completely, the narrator is completely comfortable with who he is, um, with who his siblings have become, um, because it all goes back to the people that their grandfather wanted them to be. And everybody has messed up lives, and it's siblings in chaos, but none of that, he realizes that none of that is what makes us broken. It doesn't break us. It's just not really a big deal. It's just what matters to him is that he was loved.
0: One of the things that I love about the narrator is you see his growth through the years because uh, the stories are told with sometimes some time in between, even though he's heard them over and over and over again, the narrator picks certain times of his life too, and he may have Aged a couple of years or a couple of months later or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun to see how he grew from just, oh, this is my granddad. And yeah, da, 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 he telling stories and stuff to him realizing how important granddad is mm-hmm. and how <laughs> important this adventure was to him.
1: And that very much mirrors my own uh, experience with my own grandparents. When I was a kid, eh, they were just old people, you know, they were cool. All four of my grandparents were incredibly influential people for me, and I still am hearing stories about them that just warms my, my soul. But when I was a kid, I didn't really, I wasn't able, I wasn't prepared, I didn't have the life experience to appreciate the people that they had actually become and what they had overcome and what that contributed to them as, as humans, as individual people. And I think the granddad character encapsulates a lot of how I feel about my own uh, immediate ancestors
0: it was one of the things that made the book so emotional for me because it made me think of my grandfather who mm-hmm. like like henry used to whenever i'd go over there he was always telling stories or <laughs> putting me to work in his little workshop cleaning or whatever teaching me little things and, yep. and some some of the stories you know i know now like uh, i growing up in utah we have a um, a lot of variations of color of some of our our soil mm-hmm. and in, There's one layer of sedimentation where it's like bright red, like almost fire engine red. (laughs) Of course, he would always tell us growing up, oh, it's red because that's where the wars of the Native Americans fought and their blood stained the ground. Oh, wow. So for the longest time I grew up, that's how I that's how, why I thought the ground was red. You know? That was the
1: truth of the matter. It didn't yeah, it it didn't that, even occur to you that there was another outcome that could have contributed to it. And it
0: was and, and I that love a, that
1: about those stories.
0: It's a beautiful story for me and I remember it fondly and to me that's always gonna be the reason why it's red.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, they had iron rich blood. We'll just we'll just say that. Yes,
0: exactly. And <laughs> and so I really loved the narrator looking back and it reminded me of me.
1: Oh, I'm so glad.
0: So, yeah, it really put me in a place uh to think about my grandfather and I could really connect with the narrator for that reason. So, I'm going to move on.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm completely I'm so flattered. It's that's such a wonderful thing uh for any for any kind of artist to hear. But thank you. Thank you for sharing that.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> Is it possible that we'll maybe see Arbucks again in other tales? Has he?
1: Oh, wow. Well, he is really camera shy, I'm afraid. But he's definitely still out there and he's doing well last reports is that he was seen once in the 90s, uh, just a little too close to a power station. Um, <laughs> he's, he's real big now. He's real big. And I'm not sure he needs much from me or from us. He's just, he's really good at being what he is. And it's very good to know that the world will never try to make Arbix anything more than just this simple piece of nature, just this profound, large piece of nature that just gets to do its own thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess part of that is, will we see any of Arbux's world or have they, or is it kind of that way? Just they're all kind of a little bit shy. We just want to, they want to do their own thing.
1: Well, um, Henry and his family are also quite content with the telling of the story and they have asked for privacy so that they can return to their normal lives.
0: That's perfect. That's good to know because I just want to know if I need to um, have anticipation of uh, a sequel or more tales. So, and if not, I can respect their privacy. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: I when I'm writing, I like to. I if if I don't feel like I've captured the whole A to Z between the covers, I don't mm-hmm. publish it. I need it to be finished when I put it to bed. I have a whole. Slew of projects out there, and each one of them is going to be, I anticipate, its own entity. And I think that's where my writing can be strongest because I have a terrible memory and I would hate to get something wrong with future stories and contradic- uh, contradict myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or some fan comes and says, On page 200 of right. this book, you said,
1: <laughs> oh, oh, the horror, the horror. I mustn't allow that.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like uh, fan-, fan people that get really involved with their their series or whatever and they hey i'm one of them
1: yeah <laughs> i'll fanboy out over firefly like a crazy oh, person but yes uh, <laughs> neither here nor there <laughs>
0: yeah uh, that just ups our our love for you
1: oh <laughs> yay captain tight pants
0: yay <laughs> so i loved arbucks and i love the relationship between him and henry do you think that Arbucks knew how special his relationship to Henry was?
1: You know, I'm not sure. Um, quite possibly, in his own, you know, giant way, he knew that Granddad was a good person who was helping him get someplace that wasn't going to be a bad fit. Um, <laughs> There's something very special about interacting with humans, uh, with non-humans at that level. Our own human dictionary of feelings and words doesn't seem to fit anymore. Arbix knew to trust Henry, and Henry knew to save Arbix, and I think that may be the long and short of it for him. He might not have had the capacity for our poetic concepts of dedication and love, but whatever the giant version of it is, I can guarantee you he had it in full measure for Henry.
0: That's great to know. And I felt that with the the way that you portrayed the relationship. I really felt that Arbucks knew there was something there, whether he understood it on the same level that we might try to right. understand it.
1: Right. And it's, you know, it's like having a pet deer. There can be a partnership there. But the deer will never understand human motivations or a pet whale or something like, yeah, there are fantastic stories of these Nanook of the North kind of situations where a human bonds with something really, really incredible. But it's so few and far between and it's so rare and it's so special that to put to put our kind of dictionary of poetry and love and all that other stuff that kind of cheapens it, don't you Mm -hmm.
0: think? Yes. Yeah, I, I love it. And I'm not going to spoil the end because I want people to read it. <laughs> but there's a lot of great tales of adventure and wonder and excitement and on your edge, edge of your seat type stuff. So,
1: mm. um, <laughs> yes.
0: So I mentioned in my Amazon review and I mentioned it to you that I really thought this would be such a cool animated adventure. Oh. Like like Book of the Kells or Song of the Sea. Any thoughts on that? Any possibilities? Oh. <laughs>
1: how I would love to make something like that happen. But um, honestly, I have no idea how it would work or where it would even begin. It's uh, literally that that kind of question puts me in a boat on the ocean with no oars and no compass. I I would love for something like that to happen. I would love for somebody to, you know, swim by and give me an oar and a compass and say, hey, let's go here and do this. But at this point, you know, sure. (laughs) (laughs) If someone's in the right place and would love to Chat about it. I'm all ears. I'm I'm all ears and eyes and heart and soul. I think it would be so much fun.
0: I think it would too. I think it would make a really great feature film, or maybe even a short series to go through the adventures. Oh my gosh!
1: Series for you know for the little ones to listen to, so they can have nice nightmares about bong ponies (laughs) going to bed. (laughs) I'm I'm not above that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. (laughs) So one thing I'd like to not forget about is the artwork. And I believe this is from your mother? Yes. Was it fun to work with her on this? How did you wrangle mom into drawing pictures to help illustrate some of this, this things?
1: Oh, I I couldn't be more proud of the work my mother produced for this story. And I really hounded her too to make sure that we were both happy with the illustrations. She's uh, she suffers very much from the same condition that I have of, well, if I did it, it can't possibly good, be good. So she and I definitely leaned on each other to say, oh, no, this is great. Let's take it in this direction. you know, Or, oh, well, mm, let's maybe start with something a little different. So it was really wonderful to work together. And it's such an honor to have a piece like this that we've both really contributed and poured our souls into. I don't think she'll ever know what it means to me that her that it's her art in there posing as granddad's sketches. So one more little piece of family history, she picked up sketching because her own grandmother was a sketch artist, and we have some of my great grandmother's sketches in and around the family archives. And so, for her to have published sketches, just like her grandmother, is a very special thing as well.
0: They were really great, and I guess the only my only request would have been more. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's um, yeah, it's she. We took a lot of time, and they were not fast. Uh, they were made to look casual, but th- this was not a one-off kind of deal. We worked every detail of every illustration to make sure that it was right, that you could see X, Y, or Z, in X, Y, or Z situation. And I like that they're scarce because that kind of makes them a little bit more precious.
0: It does. You're right. It does. And they are, <laughs> <laughs> they are beautiful. And thank you, Mrs. Jensen, because uh, they really enhanced the story and they were well placed and it was, it was great.
1: I agree. I agree. And did you notice, shameless plug, that at the beginning of the book, you see Granddad's chair with a cup of coffee and a bowl of cookies. And at the end of the book, you see the chair and the coffee cup is empty and the cookie bowl is empty.
0: I didn't notice that.
1: Ah, Easter egg.
0: (laughs) Wow. That is really cool.
1: So, and then if you do want to see more of her work... She is a very uh, vibrant artist. She does stained glass and watercolor and sketches. And a lot of her work is on display in a gallery in Idaho Springs, Colorado, um, along with several other talented artists. That's at Shameless Plug. That's at the Majestic Gallery in Idaho Springs. And her illustration also appears on the cover of my first book, The Victorian. She drew the sketch for that house as well.
0: I recognized the style looking at the book. And I was like, I wonder if that's that is indeed. the same one. So it's really cool. And I hope that she is as proud of it as uh, she should be, because it's an amazing, it's great work. And I'm sure it was a lot of fun to work with her on it.
1: Oh, it's anything that we do together. It's just so much fun. She's she's really been, I don't want to say an agent of chaos in my life, but she's definitely been a tour guide.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so as we're drawing to a close, talking about this, what upcoming projects do you want to share about that? No. You- You've talked about how many are there. What's coming up? Anything?
1: Oh, I have so many projects needing my attention right now. It's so embarrassing. I do have the selection of short stories that needs to be finished and published. All, of course, with my own special brand of paganness in them. And just getting started is a new story. Uh, it's a coming-of-age story for a woman getting used to being in her forties, and she's going to find herself in my magic-saturated world. And she and I are going to be very good for each other as we figure out what this being a grown-up business is all about. And she gets to do so within a community that is deeply saturated with all kinds of folk and fairy tale mischief.
0: That sounds fun.
1: It's it's going to be neat. It's um. Yeah, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I'm pretty excited about it.
0: <laughs> Do you have a estimated timeline, like late in 2019, or is it coming out oh. next month? <laughs>
1: ah, my husband would love it to be finished and out next month. He's eagerly nodding his head. It's going to take some time. I'm hoping to engage with a NaNoWriMo, just lock myself away this November and really just punch this one out and turn it into something. So maybe 2019 Larissa, if you're listening, you're allowed to hound me on this one.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. And and I will hound you too, if you don't mind.
1: No worries. Uh, It's all the, all the, um, double dog daring I can handle. It it seems to make me better.
0: (laughs) That's great. I'm really looking forward to it. And we will follow up on that. We'll definitely, uh, let folks know when it comes out, when it's ready to go, that'd be great. It's a deal. yeah, well, Caroline, anything else you want to share about Arbux or writing, or
1: oh, I just, I just want to say what an honor it's been to be able to share Arbux with the world, and just knowing that if like i say in the end of the book if one person can take something away from it that's awesome that makes me so happy really i do the med- i do the writing for the medicine of getting things out of my head and then to know that other people enjoy it too is incredibly validating and my inner 8-year-old my inner 15-year-old they're all watching attentively and saying wow look at what this person can do let's let's keep trying let's keep doing it and that's that's incredibly validating for me
0: Indeed. And this is a great book. I heartily recommend it. I loved it. I read it on ebook, and I'm just going to buy the, the hard copy because it's got to be one that I want to pull off a shelf and, and feel the pages in my hand and look at the artwork and, and read the story from time to time. At the beginning of summer, I encourage it as a, a great summer vacation reading book, one to take on a cruise or take to the beach, and you just can sit there and enjoy it, or read it to your children at night, or read it to yourself at night. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a book for everybody, and I really like it a lot. So thank you so much. And thank you, Arbucks, for coming and telling us the tale.
1: Well, he and Henry couldn't be more chuffed.
0: <laughs> Caroline, thanks so much for joining us on the so show. Good. Thank you so much for uh, putting this out. We look forward to so much more from you, and, and thank you. You are so welcome. You can get The Story of Our Bucks from Saga Press, available on Amazon and Kindle and Printed Editions. There's also a variety of other titles that will be and are available from Saga now. Saga Press has also launched their children's press as Little Bird Books. Uh, if you're looking for books for your children, go ahead and check out Little Bird and see what's coming up. Check out their Facebook pages for upcoming announcements. I will have links in the notes. Publisher Larissa Hunter, as a reminder, was interviewed on episode 19. Please do to check it out. Away. Follow me on Twitter at WeirdGifts. Like my Facebook page at Gifts of the Weird.
1: We Send me an email see.
0: with ideas for topics or maybe some musicians or guests that you think might be interesting made. to listen to on the podcast. Gifts of the Weird at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for links. Back. Thank we you. start again. Was it wrong to love so fast when all it cost me was a friend? They say pride goes before the fall. Broken hearts upon my wall. Reap the
1: crops that I have sown.
0: Nothing but regrets
1: to call my own.